0: Hello everyone, welcome to the Laura Horn Art Podcast. I hope you are keeping well and enjoying the Redefining Success series so far. Today is the halfway mark and things aren't slowing down. I have been itching to share this week's conversation. I almost started the series with it, but I've held on to it for weeks. But today is the day and my guest is Kyla Givehand. When Kyla launched her first online poetry course, one student signed up. While it wasn't the result she was hoping for, the relationship she built with that student shaped what was to come. Since then, Kyla has created over a 100 courses and helped women all over the world to find what makes them happy. Her work is the culmination of many passions, including poetry, bookbinding, teaching and intuitive painting. In this episode, Kyla talks about spirituality, being multi-passionate and the importance of nurturing the relationships you already have. Kyla's story shows that it is possible to build a creative business that also feeds your soul. I hope you enjoy the conversation and as always I encourage you to head over to Kyla's website which is at kylagivehand.com and her Instagram is at Kyla Gives. You'll find all of this information in the show notes as well. So let's begin with you telling us about your background and how you got started with bookmaking and book art.
1: Okay, so that that question takes me back. It's, it it puts me into a really beautiful space because I stumbled into book art and bookbinding. I was uh, getting an MFA at Mills College in Oakland, California, and I, I'm one of those students who wants to take all the classes every semester. I had an extra space, I thought, in my ca- in my schedule, and I went to my advisor and I said, I wanna do something that's very different from like poetry and having to read a lot of books and write a lot of words. I wanna do something else. And she said, well, we have this department where a lot of poets and things, they go and take classes. So maybe check them out. I went over there and short version, I never left. I was like, this is where I want to live. There were letterpress classes and bookbinding, contemporary printmaking. I mean, it was just, it, it was a world that I didn't know existed. And once I got a taste of it, I didn't want to do anything else. And so I Took every semester I took one to two classes. I would even have to get an override on my schedule to take those classes because I really didn't have a lot of extra space (laughs) in my schedule. Um, And I would spend hours in the studio there. And I just, it was meditative for me. It was calming. It was the best creative thing I had ever done. And I dabbled in a lot of different things from scrapbooking to Um, jewelry making I even tried pottery once like I had done all the things and bookbinding is the thing that really stuck for me and has been um, a source of both creative expression but also a a source of calm ease it's my calm in the storm uh, space to go so I jumped in with both feet and from doing that got an offer to be an apprentice with a a world-renowned bookbinder, Julie Chen, who was also my teacher at Mills, it just became a part of my life and and I never looked back.
0: So what do you think it is about bookbinding and making books that you love so much? What was it about that that made it different to all the other things that you've explored creatively?
1: You know, I've never thought about that other other than the fact that Kind of like a fountain. I'm I'm the kind of person, I'm always doing a lot of different things. I stay busy because I feel comfortable in busyness. (laughs) And uh, when I need to slow down, meditation, traditional meditation doesn't really work for me the way a lot of people say it works for them. Fountain pens make me slow down. When I write with a fountain pen, I have to be intentional. I have to slow down. Bookbinding did the same thing for me, right? The folding of paper, the creasing of paper, it makes me slow down. You can't really do it quickly. You you have to kind of pay attention and be intentional about it. Um, And so I think that it is a it it takes my brain from a thousand thoughts a minute to maybe five hundred thoughts a minute, (laughs) which for me is like meditation. So. I think that that has been, that's been the thing and it doesn't require a lot. It doesn't require a lot of supplies. It doesn't require a lot of time. I think that has been the thing that made it stick for, for me, like scrapbooking required all the things you had to have the papers and the, and the this and the, that you had to have a, have a lot of things. Some forms of art require all the things I tried encaustic once. And I was like, Oh gosh, no, this is not my thing. And I think it was just that book binding doesn't require a lot. It, You literally, I mean, I have been in restaurants and felt very overwhelmed and just grabbed napkins and started folding them into books, right? You don't, it doesn't require a lot. So I think that's probably the thing that made it stick for me is it's easy to go to, to get to, it's accessible and you don't really even have to, I mean, you can learn one book structure and just keep repeating that over and over again.
0: It's interesting that you say that it's easy and accessible because in my mind, sometimes I have thought, "Oh, I don't know how to do that." Like I've seen other people put books together, and it's almost felt a little bit outside of of, of my capabilities, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> which is is crazy. I know it's crazy, but I just I wanted to share that because I'm wondering if anyone yeah. listening has thought about making books and wanted to, you know, maybe create a little art journal or something like that, but haven't actually, you know knowing how to do it. And it's been some kind of barrier.
1: Yeah. I don't think that's crazy at all, actually, Laura, because I look at what you do and I say the same thing you just said in relationship to what you do. I go, am I ever going to be able to do that? I don't, I don't know that I'm ever going to be able to make abstract art that way or paint beautiful watercolors this way, or doodle those flowers onto that to make them look that way. Like I just, I look at, at what you do. And I say the exact same thing. So I, I literally think it is, I think it's just a matter of, you know, I think one of the things you said in one of your classes that I've taken is that you've basically shown us the the techniques and you've shown us how to do it. Now the work for us is to practice basically in so many words, I'm not quoting you exactly, but right. The practice, the repetition, the doing it over and over again, right. Is what is how we get comfortable. So I don't think I don't think that's crazy at all for you
0: to feel that way or say that. It's so true because it's something that I haven't done. So because of that I don't have any confidence. I haven't built any confidence around bookmaking. But as soon as you start doing something, then you build that confidence step by step. And then the fear and the you know the things that you've put in place, the barriers melt away. So if someone wanted to get started with book art, what would you suggest?
1: I would say, um, obviously, I would say, come and take a class with me. I'll make it very easy for you. <laughs> I'll break down all of the, I, I, one of my missions uh, was really to, when I left the book art world, because book art and book binding are two very different worlds. And so this is probably a good opportunity for me to just say a little bit about that, because book, book art is a very specific kind of art right just just as abstract is a very particular kind of art and mixed media is its own kind of art book art is its own thing and has its own sort of uh, markers you know how do you know something is book art It, it you know you have Certain markers, like a person has taken a structure and they have used the structure to inform the content or the content to inform the structure. And that book art has a very different intention behind it than just book binding, right? So I lived in that book art, the very traditional book art world for several years. And there were times when I didn't, I felt out of place. And, and I felt like I didn't belong there or that I didn't, um, I wasn't good enough to be in that world. And so one of my goals and my missions was to demystify book binding for people um, to help them see the difference in book art and book binding, because they're a book artists who sell one book for 2500 dollars right? Like that's very different than a handmade art journal that cost maybe $60, right? And so just helping people see the distinction, the difference, um, and just uh, that that came became a thing. And so in 2013, I did a book in a day where I challenged myself to make a different book structure every single week and to do it in one day. And I, I sort of quantified a day as from the time I wake up until I go to bed. So, you know, not necessarily... a.m. to 11.59 p.m. But just, you know, from the time I woke up to the time I went to bed. And it was a beautiful challenge I gave myself to build my confidence as a book binder because I was coming out of that traditional book art world, which can be a little bit, uh, the best way way I can describe it is a little bit brutal in, in some of the rules that exist in that world. And so I wanted people to feel the joy of making a handmade book without the pressure of making book art. I'm not sure if I just answered the question you asked me, but yes, if a person was coming to take, you know, wanted to learn book binding, I would say, you know, I've got a hundred some odd videos on on YouTube where I I walked through 52 different structures and then the next year I did 12 different structures one a month. And they—they they are all out there, free and accessible. There's lots of beautiful people doing amazing tutorials. Um, junk journaling has become a thing, and that often includes some handmade bookbinding and journaling. Uh, so there's lots of yeah. I just say start. Just seek out uh, somebody that you can learn from that feels safe. There are lots of books even. Um, I learned from some books, but also sought out teachers that were teaching things I really wanted to learn in bookbinding. And yeah, I mean, the structures are, a lot of the structures are as old as art is, right? Like go back to cave drawings. As soon as they started making paper from papyrus, right? The book, books started to be bound, right? A scroll is a form of bookbinding, right? So it's as old as humanity is. And so I think we can, yeah, just take a deep breath and let it be easy. Let it be
0: easy. I'm so glad that you took some time to explain some of the differences between book art, book binding, and then even mentioning things like junk journaling, art journaling. Mm-hmm. Because you know, for maybe for someone who's not as involved in that creative field, it's sort of hard to know where one thing begins and ends, you know, and mm-hmm. whether there's overlap between all those different things. Where is your creative practice? now like what would you describe it as it's funny you're asking
1: me that because i recently wrote on a fa- on an instagram post that i'm not sure that i'm an art journaler and laura let me tell you how, the number of people who private message me after reading that post <laughs> I was, I was like, wait a minute, what, what is happening? It, I went, I just opened Instagram and I saw that little button at the top, <laughs> and it had like forty, the number. And I was like, what is happening? Am I being spammed? What's going on? Uh, but it resonated with a lot of people, and they, several people, were like, what do you mean you're not a book, an art journal Can you, can you say more about that? And I think that there is this um, definitions that emerge when we begin to label something, right? Uh, then we have to give it boundaries we have to be able to tell it from something else and so i think the art journaling world has created right a language around it that when i sit down and really think about what i do in my creative expression what my creative expression looks like the words i would choose would be visual journaling as opposed to art journaling because i do think that there is a um i don't know i mean i look at people who do what i think is like beautiful art journaling and i go yeah no that's not really what i do my my work often my creative expression starts with words and then, and i think an art journaler starts with imagery and i think that's a just it's, a, it's such a subtle distinction to make but I think there is. I I start and end with words, and so my creative expression is is really words, word play, poetry. Um, I mean, I have a degree in poetry, which doesn't really mean anything, but it. <laughs> I remind myself of that often because it it is almost like my permission to write really bad poetry in order to get to really good poetry. So my creative expression right now is is really focused on I call my books vessels and so I create these handmade vessels that are intended to hold my ideas my images my imagination my dreams my hopes my desires all the things and it all spills out of me in the form of words and so whenever I sit down to create a journal sometimes I'm just folding paper and I don't know what it's going to be but they are, and that's very intuitive, but sometimes I'm really intentional. Like I want to make a book for this specific reason. And then I will build a book for that particular thing. So I think right now my creative expressions is, or my, just my creative practice is really centered around what I call the journey within, like, what is my heart asking me to do today? What is my heart asking me to create today? And that can lead me in a lot of different places. But if I'm being really honest, it either starts or ends with words um, in some shape, form or fashion.
0: So when did you become interested in the inner journey and take a more spiritual approach to your art? Because I know from looking at your website and all the courses that you offer, you treat creativity very holistically and you look at the journey within When did that start to come through? I believe it probably
1: was triggered by uh, some
0: health thing
1: that I had happened back in, I guess it started in 2006 and then I had a surgery in 2007 and it changed my life. It was supposed to be something that was a 45-minute in and out and I spent two days in the hospital and my mother and my husband tell me that when I came out of the surgery, they they thought they were willing out a dead person. They were like, you were blue. It looks like you had not had any air in your lungs for hours. We didn't know what was happening. And uh, the doctor then, you know, explained to me that they had miscalculated how long it would take and they hadn't had any blood ready for me. And I lost a lot of blood. Like it was just, it was a whole thing. And obviously I didn't know the sort of, panic they were all experiencing because I was under anesthesia but I came out of that and I in a couple of years before had had a a really bad car accident where the police officer came into the hospital and and said I you know I'm so sorry for y'all's loss and but I need to talk to somebody who can tell me about the driver and I was like well I was the driver and his eyes were he, he got really huge and he's like there's no way you were driving that car that I just saw. He was like, the person driving that car has to be dead. There's no way. And so I feel like those two experiences were almost like me hearing the voice of God saying, this is life is short. Life is short. Live the life you're here to live. Do the thing you keep putting off doing stop. Right. And so fast forward a little bit, I, um, I had been applying to an MFA program (laughs) for five years in a row and never mailing it off. I would write up all the essays I needed to do, and I would write out a check, handwrite a check, and put it in an envelope, and I'd seal everything up, and I would never send it off because fear, fear kept stopping me. Like, nope, your manuscript's not good enough. Your writing's not good enough. You're never going to get in. They only take 10 people a year. You're not, there's no way. 10 people out of thousands, you're never going to get in. And after I had that car accident and that surgery, I took my manuscript. I wrote that check and I sent that thing off for the very first time (laughs) after five years of doing it every year. I had a stack of them, Laura, in my my garage, a stack of every one that I had filled out and never sent off. And then that year, 2007, I sent it off. And I think I just had what I call a spiritual awakening, a, a different connection to what it meant to really be. Alive, Um, and the thing that helped me come back from that surgery was uh, I started making jewelry, and just put string. If you've ever done jewelry making, stringing those little tiny seed beads onto an onto a piece of thread is like meditation in and of itself. And I had a lot of time to really think and hear and listen um, to my own inner voice, which I think is also you know the voice of God speaking to and through me. And I just. I just had a lot of insight and epiphanies. I had a lot of quiet time. I, I had to quit uh, a couple of jobs that I had. I was the kind of person that had three jobs, three teaching jobs. I was a teacher in, in the high school, and then I would teach college classes at night, and and then, then I was teaching online classes, and literally my my world came to a, a halt, and I had to really focus on my own personal health, and I had to bring myself back i like to say I had to bring myself back online is kind of how I describe it. Like I needed a reboot. I had to hit the restart reboot button. And um, I think during that entire process, like I would spend hours alone in the house because my husband and my nephew who I was raising, they would be off at school and work. And I was home alone just with my own thoughts. And, uh, and I think that that the art part of, of uh, making jewelry and, and just looking for anything. I tried learning to knit and crochet and like, I just tried a bunch of different things because I needed, I needed an outlet to help me move through what was happening to me in terms of like, God, what is it that you want me to do here? I don't, right. I I was feeling that. And so I think that that is when the two started to come together is I just had like a little bit of a shakeup. Like it was almost like, you know, spirit grabbed my my arms and just kind of shook me and said, listen, you have a life to live and you're not doing it. And you have a purpose here and a mission and you're not living into it. And so I took that. Um, and when I got accepted to Mills, I took that as a sign that I was on the right path, doing the right thing, living into my purpose. And when I tell you that Mills College changed my life, that MFA program changed my life, I came out on the other side of that a completely different person. Um, Mills College, uh, when I was there, was all women undergrad, and then it was co-ed for the graduate program, and I sat in classrooms with women who were 20, 25 years my junior, younger than me, and women who were 25, 30 years older than me, and I sat there, and I listened to stories of empowerment and stories of despair, and I just never felt so at home in my body, right, to be sitting and hearing the, so the long, this is a long way to say I think that it took, and I I hope that it, my goal is to help women not have to have that sort of big life event thing that shakes them up for it to happen for them, right, to hear the voice before you get to the point of everything having to tumbled down in your life for you to hear it, um, which is pretty much what had to happen to me. I Like everything, my my work, my freedom, my independence, all of it had to kind of come crumbling down for me to really see that I was not on the path that that was really my path. Um, it was the path of everybody saying, oh, here's how you, here's what the, the degree to get to get a job. And here's what you need to do to get this job. And here's what you have to do to buy that house. And I had to be broken all the way down to just my voice and the voice of God to be able to really to know what to do. And I think that's when the two became one for me. Uh, Creativity and spirituality, Mm -hmm. for me, come from the same space.
0: I wonder if I could ask you a question. I have a few people in my life who have come to me and said that they want to connect with their spirituality, but they're finding it really hard. And they don't feel Mm. like they're a spiritual person. Have Mm. you ever had an experience of helping women or men who Mm -hmm. are struggling to connect with their spirituality? Oh
1: my goodness!
0: I think that is pretty much the work that I do all the time,
1: Uh, and I do primarily work with women. Um, I do. Um, I have a few men in my community, but I, I do tend to work primarily with women, and I think. What I have noticed over 15 years of doing this work is that because I was doing this work and I didn't realize I was doing this work before I had my own sort of awakening, which is a whole other story in and of itself. But the work that I do now with women primarily is we start um, you know, you may have noticed I call myself a, an alchemist, a life alchemist or creative alchemist. and it's because I do use the elements, right the, this idea of fire, air, earth, and water uh, to, to sort of connect into what is happening in our own lives, right And so when people come to me and they and they are having what I call um, sort of like a spiritual drought because I think we're we all you know it's kind of like having create, creative block. A lot of people talk about creative block, and I feel like sometimes we can have spiritual blocks as well. And it for me, I find that it often happens after there has been a trauma, or there has been something has happened that makes you feel like maybe God and and I I use God, but I often just say Universe, Source, because you know everybody has a different word for what what it is they're feeling energy, right? Whatever it is, mm-hmm. but I often realize that. When I start to talk to them, I realize that it has ha- there has been something that has literally made their spirit retreat from their body to protect itself. And so they're feeling a disconnect in that moment. And so we kind of have to I, I'm not a therapist. I don't claim to be a therapist. That is not the work that I do, but I but I I do work with people to help them connect back to the story that will help them see where the disconnect happened. And it usually is a moment where they needed, their spirit felt it needed to be protected from what was happening to them or around them. And it could be something as simple as being in a car accident, like I was, right? And, you know, one thing I didn't say about the car accident is it took me 18 months to drive again before I would even drive. It took me eight months before I would get in a car. Right. I walked everywhere. I rode a bike. I would not get in a car for like eight months. Right. And, and I felt disconnected from from myself. Really, I didn't feel like myself. And so what people are often describing when they're saying they struggle with spirituality, which is very different than religion. Right. We can sit and talk about that for hours. But spirit and spirituality is I mean, just the word inspiration right? Has spirit in it. And so I often say to people who come to me and say, I'm just creatively blocked. I can't come in. I said, well, let's, let's talk about what's happening spiritually with you. Like, what does your faith look like? And what are you devoted to? And what kind of rituals do you have in your life and routines that bring you out in nature or get you closer to source, to universe, to the energy um, that is all around us all the time? What, what does it look like for you? And oftentimes they don't have it. They have no practice that connects them. And I say, why don't you just start tomorrow by lighting a candle before you sit down to journal, right? Just start doing that. Like that's one simple act that you can do. It creates intention. Um, And I think with intention, we bring attention, right? To the thing that we are trying to call into our lives. So I'm not sure if I'm really answering the question because I'm also trying to, I guess I'm tiptoeing a little around the conversation about spirituality because it can be so off-putting for some people or mm-hmm. difficult for some people. So, I guess I'll just say that when I talk about when I use the word God, I'm I'm also speaking, you know, source, universe, energy, whatever name you want to give it. That's I think it's important for me to just repeat that mm-hmm. piece because um, I don't want anyone to think that this is a conversation about religion because i I make a, a extreme distinction between spirituality and religion.
0: You've answered the question beautifully, and <laughs> I have to say like there's a few things you said there that really hit home and were very helpful, and I'm sure they will be for others. and um, I hope so. I'm glad that you also made that distinction too, that we're we're talking about spirituality um, in yeah. today's conversation. I wanted to, I guess, try and track uh, your journey a little bit here um, because mm-hmm. you did your MFA and you discovered bookbinding and your love of that. What happened after that? So when, once you had finished your degree, did you know where you were heading or what you were going to do as far as a career or I'm just trying to fill in that gap and sort of chart how you got from there to where you are now?
1: Oh, thank you for asking that question. Um well, when I graduated, that was 2010, and I had started a literary journal uh before I grad like as a it was actually one of the assignments in a class I was taking and I started it and I it was we were just to make like a pretend art uh, like a pretend uh literary journal. Well, if you've met me at all, I don't really do anything just for pretend things have to be practical and make sense to me. (laughs) And I needed to have a logical reason to be in my life and in the world. So I created an actual literary journal. And that, when I graduated, I had the intention of publishing that Uh, four times a a year. I had the intention of writing and publishing poetry, manuscripts and books and writing a novel, a young adult novel. And when I left there, I had all of those things in the works. And For three years, I did. I actually, you know, had the literary journal. I didn't publish four times. I never got to the point where I was publishing for a year, but I did publish a total of four over three years and started a literary podcast, actually, and that felt so long ago um, that that happened. You know, I, I did that. I didn't feel like I was flailing, but I felt like I was, I didn't, it was a labor of love, it wasn't a way to work. And like I said, I was working, I was apprenticing with Julie Chen. And so I was working with her and Julie is what I consider a book engineer. She's definitely a book artist, but she engineers her books. They, they are magical the way she creates. And and so being in her studio day after day and watching her and sort of seeing behind the scenes how she creates her books and the magic that they are just it was so much inspiration and so much fuel for my own what could be next for me that I just started doing the things that I thought would bring me joy and I think that I ended up, uh, starting a business unintentionally. I didn't, (laughs) I didn't intend to start a business and that business turned into a coaching practice. And I started coaching women on creativity. And then that turned into helping women start businesses and, um, more specifically creative women, like taking the thing that they were making with their hands, teaching them how to get it online and sell it online and start Etsy shops and all of these things. And, None of it was intentional. None of it was something I sat down and did a vision board and said, I'm going to start a bit like it, it. That's not how it happened. It literally happened by me every single day, waking up and choosing joy, choosing what was going to make me happy that day. Um, and I know that sounds cheesy and a little bit cliche, you know, just to track back a little bit. I had just come from a life where I wasn't doing that. That wasn't that, and I vowed to not go back to that. To not go back to living a life where I was just doing what I was supposed to do, to be, uh, you know, living the quote unquote American dream—the house with the dog and the kids and the right—and I was like, that I don't think that's my life. I don't. That didn't make me happy. I did that. I had the big house with the big yard and the two cars and the right and the ski trips twice a year and the vacations and the, and I was not very happy. I, I think people from the outside looking in saw happy, but I didn't feel happy. I didn't feel purposeful at all. And so I think after graduation, I just started doing things that did no harm to anyone else, but brought me joy, right? I just started choosing that day after day after day. So I, I continued to teach at the college level. And I you know I taught a few college level courses um, at, a, at the local colleges in, in Oakland. I just, yeah, I, I, I've always been a teacher and I think I always will be a teacher. And eventually I woke up one day and I said, I cannot teach for anyone else. I need to create my own school. I need to do things that bring me joy. And so I started teaching poetry classes. And if I'm being you know, fully transparent here, Laura, my very first online poetry class by myself, not attached to any academic institution, I had one person sign up. One person and I was devastated. (laughs) And after I got over my devastation that I could only get one person to sign up for a class with me, I sat with her and for six weeks the two of us wrote beautiful poems together and I taught her different forms and it was it was the most beautiful experience. And I almost canceled. I almost said, you know what? I didn't get I, I don't think I'm good at this because I didn't get I only got one person to sign up. But I didn't know anything about marketing, you know, I just I didn't. So I took that one person and that one class and I built the best darn poetry class I could build. And then I launched it again and I got 17 people to sign up the next time. And then I launched it again and I just kept showing up for the things that brought me joy because that class with that one person was absolutely, it was like a salve for my soul. Like it it was the most healing experience to sit side by side with her each week and write these poems and share and read to each other and laugh and cry together. And then I said, I want to do this with more women. And so then I did. And I just kept, I just kept doing that. And from that one class, I built a school. I just kept saying, what do I want to do? Oh, you know what? I want to teach a class where I teach people how to pull tarot cards and Oracle cards and we journal about it. Right. And, and so I just kept every class I create literally <laughs> is a class I want to take. And that's how I have built my business is what is it that I need and want to do in the world? What would have helped me? And, and so that's that was, that's was that been the journey is every time I have an idea for a class, I go, is that something I would want to take? And if it's a yes for me, then I create the class. And then I invite other people to sit with me and beside me while we go through the class together, right? I'm always a student in my own classes, which I know sounds kind of crazy, but I do, I create the class and then I go through the classes if I'm a student, like I get a journal, I do the lessons, <laughs> I treat it like, like I don't know what's coming. Uh, so that's, that's been my, that's been my journey. I just literally have built a school based on classes that I wanted to take.
0: So when did you create that very first class? I want to say it was 2012,
1: maybe even 2011, maybe the, sort of the end of 2011, 2012, because I had I had been at least a year out of Mills and I graduated in 2010. So yeah, it was probably a 2011, 2012.
0: And what was it like to create your first online class? You said you didn't know much about marketing or anything like that. What did it feel like to go through that process?
1: So I have a, I do have a degree in curriculum design and technology and online learning, um, which I had before I got the MFA. So I really just took what I knew about curriculum design and I layered it onto what I knew about poetry and filtered out the stuff that felt like being back at an academic institution. Like I wasn't going to grade papers. I wasn't going to do any of the sort of pieces that I was leaving behind in the academic setting and it felt this is going to sound cliché it just felt fun it felt fun to research oh what poems will i bring when i talk about writing sonnets right like of course i'm going to talk about shakespeare but then i want to give people permission to break the rules of a sonnet and see what other kind of things they could do if they you know look at what shakespeare did but now do this other thing and try this and so everything as i was building it was about oh what would be fun what would be a different approach to how they would, you know, see it some other place? So I did a lot of reading and scouring through all my poetry books that I had collected over the years, and just really fun. It I, I built it based on what felt fun, right there. There are probably a hundred different poetic types that I could have taught, but I picked the ones that felt most fun to me. We started with something I would teach my seventh graders when I taught seventh grade, you know, let's make a poem out of your name, write your name down, you know, vertically down the paper and let's make a poem, right? And we moved all the way to writing things that were like pantons, which are very, have a very specific structure. And and so I just did what was fun, what felt like it would be fun to do.
0: I love that your approach has been centered around what would be, what would be fun what you're loving and enjoying at any given moment, that you would continue to be a student in your own classes. There's so many things that you've said that I just love and that you create the classes that you want to take. And, you know, you can see that in your work. You can see that that has always motivated what you do. It's interesting because I have a question here that I was going to ask you and I feel like you've kind of answered it in the way that you've answered many of the things that we've already talked about. But the question was around you love many things, poetry, writing, bookbinding, intuitive painting, teaching. Have you ever felt the pressure to choose one thing?
1: (laughs) Oh yes, Laura. <laughs> so I'm laughing at that because my, I have had so many moments in my life where I was asked to choose one thing, um, and it took me. I'm I'm 48 years old as of the, this recording, and it, I will honestly say that it probably took me until I was 40 to go. I, I have chosen one thing. It's called joy, period. Mm. Like that's what I've chosen. I've chosen to do what brings me joy because the one thing I know for sure, when I am joyful, my husband is happier, right? I also am a primary caretaker for my mother right now. When I'm joyful, my mother is healthier and happier. When I am joyful, my clients and my customers and the students in my classes have a better experience. When I am not when I am grumpy or frustrated or life feels overwhelming and chaotic for me, that spills out into my relationship with my husband and my mother and my clients, customer students. And so I am multi-passionate. And, I, and I, if I had to be even like more specific to say, yes, I've chosen joy, but I've just chosen creativity. And sometimes that looks like binding a book. And sometimes that looks like intuitive painting. And sometimes it looks like writing a poem. And sometimes it looks like trying a new supply and just making swatches all over the, a huge piece of paper, right? In the end, it all ends up being something that brings me joy. But it's, it's just all under the umbrella of creative exp- expression, creativity.
0: I absolutely love that you've chosen creativity. So you have chosen one thing. <laughs> in a yeah. way yeah. You know,
1: and I and I get the question on a technical level yeah. right and I have the pressure of like Kyla, if you want your Instagram account to look like this, then you need to just pick one thing and just show that over and over and over again. And I'm like, oh, do I, do I really have to do that? I don't know, right. And so I tried that and it didn't bring me joy. And so I stopped doing that and I just started sharing what was on my table, what I'm doing now. What I'm what I'm totally obsessed with right now, right? Uh, when I started collecting artisan watercolors, handmade watercolors, I'm like, I'm just going to show these. I'm just going to swatch these and share these with people. I am obsessed with swatching watercolors and fountain pen inks. I literally wish somebody would just give me a job doing that. If somebody <laughs> would give me a job doing that, I would totally like, okay, no, I wouldn't. I was going to say I would put my business to the side, but I totally would not. (laughs) But you get what I'm saying? Like, if someone's like, Kyla, what's your, what's your dream job? Like swatching watercolors and fountain paintings. That's it. Uh, So yeah, I just, I choose what, and and I share the things, you know, I, I share what I'm working on because I think what I'm trying, if I'm being really honest and just on my business hat for a moment what I'm trying to sell people is not a handmade journal I'm not even trying to sell them a class to learn how to make a handmade journal I am trying to sell them the idea that they can live a creative life and they can choose what that looks like that's really what I'm trying to sell people right in my business is that you can live an unapologetic creative life and and if that is what brings you joy then then I've done my job right like that's That's really truly what I'm what I'm selling um, at the end of the day when I really think about it. So so I get the question about the choosing one thing. And I have felt that pressure. And I I can say I still every now and then slip into that, like, what would happen if I did just choose one thing? What would I choose? And that's where I get hung up because I don't know. I don't know what I would what what one thing I would choose other than joy, to be honest. And that is my create, yeah, that's creativity for me. So
0: Yeah, because if you listen to a lot of podcasts like on marketing and business and maybe read articles and things, there is a lot of, uh, I guess, not pressure, but, you know, a lot of it will be around, you know, that it makes sense to choose one thing and get very, very good at it and get very well known for it. And that's how you grow a creative business. And I have felt that myself, but I've also felt what you've talked about, which is losing the joy when I get swept into that kind of way of working so it is it is a tricky one but I want to come back to you mentioned that you created an online class you had one student and then that grew I think you said at 17 the next time Mm -hmm. and from there it grew then you created other online classes the reason I wanted to talk about this is because there are many people listening who are in those early stages which can sometimes have those moments of disappointment where you create a thing and it doesn't meet your expectations, the sales or whatever it is, the numbers. And it is really helpful to hear a story of someone who has moved through that and grown a business and kept going and had persistence. So let's talk about your business now so that we can see what has happened because you stuck with it. So you have, how many online classes have you got now? How many people have you worked with, helped? I don't need exact numbers, but I just want to show the, where your business has evolved to through following your joy and doing it your own way.
1: So, okay, I love this question and I'm, I'm going to bring a couple of things to the table. So I probably have created more than 100 classes at this point. Not all of them are what we call evergreen. Like, you know, I'll create a class, like a poetry six-week workshop. And once the six weeks is done, the class goes behind the vault, like you can't see it, right? So I've I've probably created at this point, 100 different courses. Um, Some of them I repeat. I have a writing course I do every winter called Writing into Winter. Um, And here's what's so funny as I listen to you sort of say it back to me, Laura. um, I started that poetry class, the very first one. And in my mind, I was like, oh, I'll probably get 50. I can probably get 50 people to sign up for this. And that would be so fun to have 50 people writing poems and da, da, da. I got the one person and then I got the 17. And then I eventually did teach that class and have 50 plus people in it. And I hated that. It was too many people. I couldn't hear everybody's poems. I couldn't get everybody, you know, not everybody had time for sharing. It was, and so now when I run a, a writing class, a poetry class, uh, I usually only take 12 people in there. So it's an interesting thing for me to even hear it, hear it now go, oh, right. I, I set out and I wanted a lot of people. And now when I do a class, I, I cap it at 12 because the one thing that has been, The most important part of what I do, and I think I just did it intuitively, but now I can look back and say, oh, now I do it with intention, is nurturing the people that have said yes to me. And I can't hold space for 50 poets at once. And do a good job at it. Right. So, okay, so I wanted to say that piece of like, oh, right. I looked at where I started, was like wanting all of these people, and then zoom out and go, now I only make room for 12 because that feels more, it actually feels more spacious to me. It feels more um like what I how I want to show up as a teacher. So that's that's one piece is sometimes we we have to start one place to end up in that same place, right? (laughs) Like now I go, yeah, 17 sounds like a lot of people. That (laughs) sounds like more people than I actually want in a class of poets, right? Um, So that's one piece. Uh, The other piece, I think, you know, I have, I've worked with thousands of people. Um, My email list is uh, over 10,000 people. And I, some days go, are these 10,000 people really listening? Do they really open my emails? And every now and then I'll look at the metrics and the analytics and the things and I'll go, oh, wow, 82% open rate. That's, I think that's pretty good. Right. And I go, hmm, what's the magic formula here? Like, what did I do to do that? And I don't know what the magic formula is. Let me just say that right out of the gate. But what I know, what I do, is i spend more time nurturing the people who have said yes than wooing the people who have yet to say yes so We spend a lot of time hearing, you know, here's how you build your list. Here's how you get more people. Get a thousand people in a week. Here's how, right? There's a lot of that uh, chatter that happens in our heads when we start businesses. And I want to say to people who are just starting out, you're going to start with zero people following you. That's what we all do. We all start with zero when you decide, right? Um, Unless we got some family, friends, a few, you know, maybe we've cultivated a little bit there. But when we start building our list, Biggest thing I can say to people is don't forget the people who have said yes, because you're trying to get other people to say yes. Right. Like nurture the people who've already said yes to you. Love on them. Um, You know, give to them before you give to people who haven't said. Right. I see so many people. Here's a freebie for you. Here's a freebie. Here's a freebie. Here's a freebie, which I think is great. It's a beautiful way to get people to know what it is you do and, and be a part but, but from time to time, I just give free things to people who've already said yes to me, right, that other people don't necessarily get. And that has been a practice that I've continued since the beginning, right, which is why I think people do open my emails that have been on my list for 10 years. Right. I have people who literally have been on my email list for 10 years. I have people who consistently take classes for me because they know that I I do tend to over deliver uh, to the people who have already said yes. And so that that piece for me, I don't I think a lot of times we can get hung up on uh, what it looks like from the outside, but what's happening on the inside of my business is I spend a lot of time nurturing relationships with people who've already said yes. They already clicked on the button, said yes, signed up for the class, signed up for the free thing, uh, bought the the this, that, or the other. And I spend time getting to know them. I I have a conversation with them. I I say things like hit reply and tell me blah, blah, blah. And when they hit reply and tell me, I respond back. Thank you, thank you for sharing that with me, right? Um, It takes a lot of time, it does, don't get me wrong. And it oftentimes pulls me from some of the creative work I wanna be doing. But in the end, it is the thing that also makes it possible for me to launch a class and not have to do a ton of marketing if I want to get 12 butts in seats, (laughs) right? If I wanna get 12 people to take a class for me, I usually don't have to go outside of my list to do that. I don't have to do a big marketing campaign and boosting a post and this, because I'm just trying to get 12 people to say yes to poetry. And usually those 12 people are already on my list. I've already been nurturing a relationship with them. So I'm not sure if I answered the full, full question there, Laura, because I kind of got on my little rant about nurturing your people. But um, that that has been the thing for me. Again, going back to joy, It brings me a lot of joy to do that. It brings me a lot of joy to read people's emails when I've asked a question in my email and they respond back to it. It feels like a dialogue, like a conversation, like a pen pal, right? Like, you know, like somebody, I wrote someone a letter and they wrote me back. Uh, It kind of feels
0: like that to me. And that brings me joy. Yeah, absolutely have answered the question. Just wanted to say that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I'm really glad that you, talked us through and let us sort of go behind the scenes because one of the reasons that I started this interview series that I'm working on at the moment is because I wanted to showcase artists and creative people that were achieving success in different ways and in particular success that might not be so obvious on social media. So I was looking at artists that have maybe a smaller social media following But what I wanted to show was that there's all this stuff that's going on that you might not necessarily see, this nurturing of relationships, um, these classes that you've created, the people that you're working with, like all this sort of stuff may not be as easy for someone to see by just flicking on Instagram or something like that, but it's going on and it's feeding your soul and others. So that's a big part of why I wanted to do this interview series and you've explained it so well and showed us the work that you do and that the focus isn't necessarily on social media and sharing in that way and that you don't need to do, you know, the sponsored posts and all that kind of stuff and the big launch because of the way that you run your business.
1: And it's, you know, it's interesting that you say that because sometimes I forget that I have a small following. Like not, well, let me say it this way. Small is relative, I know. Um, Because I say, oh, I got 10,000 people on my email list. And some people go, that's it. And other people go, oh my God. Right. So small is relative. I get that. Uh, All of these numbers are somewhat arbitrary. and, And, you know, but I had a friend who said to me once at a fountain pen show, we were hanging out, walking, and she had like, a hundred and some odd thousand people on on her uh, social media, and she said, "Kyla, don't ever mistake a hundred and twenty thousand followers to mean that I make a hundred and twenty thousand dollars a day, a week, a year." She was like, "It's it's not a it's it's not a dollar for for person kind of thing." She was like, "Don't assume that." She was like, "A lot of people assume that they make that assumption." She was like, "And the truth is, that's not actually how it how it works out." She was like. If you are able to carve out a living for yourself, who cares how many people you have following you or don't have following you? If you're able to do what you love and make a living from it, right? My husband lost his job. Um, I don't, 2016, 17, somewhere around there. And hasn't had to go back to traditional work since then, because I've built a business that can sustain us both, right. That can sustain us and him working in the background and, and helping uh, build this business. And so Sometimes people from and I don't talk about that. Right. I don't. That's not something you're going to see on my social media or, you know, I'm not advertising that uh, when I'm marketing or launching or, or talking about whatever. Right. Um, but that is that's the truth of the matter is that the business I've built can't, sustains the life that my husband and I have and love and we're able to do things that we love and also we, we know that there's more for us, right? We know that we are working to do more for our people, which we in turn believe will will be more for us, right? Like that that's kind of the sacred reciprocity that we work from, is if we can pour into the people who are in our community, they in turn pour back into us and I just trust, I trust that the universe is taking care of me because I am doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing in the world. I am helping people find their connection to their creative self, their spiritual self, and bringing those things together. And as long as I stay the course, I really truly believe that I I will always have exactly what I need. I'll have everything I need. And I I wake up with that, that sort of faith in, in this work that I do. So I don't know if that adds another layer for people as well. It's like there's a certain amount of faith we have to have that we are doing good work in the world and that our, our work is bigger than maybe what we can even see and that it doesn't always show up in in the numbers that are
0: front-facing
1: for, for folks
0: right I'm so happy that you added that kind of other layer to it which is very much the internal measure of your work and how you feel about the work that you are are doing for the world and how that impacts upon you and your loved ones. It's brought me to the last question that I wanted to ask you. And once again, I kind of feel like you've answered this question throughout our conversation, but I will read it out to you because I have asked every artist that I've interviewed for this season this question, and it is around success. It is what does success mean to you as an artist and has your view of success Changed over time.
1: Oh gosh! So I'm going to start from the end of that question and say, absolutely, my uh, idea of success has changed. When I was in my 20s, Laura, success looked like a big house, a nice car, being able to, you know, have take multiple vacations and do like it was very material driven. It was like there is a tangible thing that will prove I have made it, right? That I am successful. There are all these. Visible, tangible things, and I think that I worked myself into an illness um, trying to achieve that, trying to get that. There's nothing wrong with that being a benchmark for people. I, I want to say that too. Like, if that is, if that's your thing, and that's what drives you, and that feels like purpose for you, I'm not in any way disparaging that. But it drove me into into sort of a, a health crisis, and so now. What success looks like for me is time freedom, being able to take off in the middle of a day for half a day, or being able to work three hours uh, in one day. And, you know, that's enough for that day, Uh, being able to create when I want to create just for the sake of creating, being able to go get my toes and my nails done with my mama and just sit and laugh about the silliest of things and read magazines together. And, right? Time freedom is one of my biggest sort of boxes to check when it comes to, to success. The other is, uh, I don't know how to say this without sounding repetitious, but it's, it's like, how much joy do I have in my life? How much love am I able to give to others? Because I'm going to tell you, when I was spending all that time trying to buy a really big house and have, you know, a nice car. doing none of that, I don't know that I was a nice person, right? I think I was not as kind as I could have been as a human, right? And I think that now my measure of, of success is, can I love more? Can I increase the amount of love I put out into the world? And if I'm able to do that, if I'm able to just take it up just a tiny little notch, just turn it up a notch each day, I feel like I've been successful. When I sit down at the end of the day to prepare for the next day to kind of look at, okay, what did I get done today? And then I look at what do I need to do tomorrow? When I am looking at those things and I'm looking at the end of my day and I'm like, oh, wow, I spent two hours, you know, putting together a, this, that, or the other for this group of people that are going to be taking this class for me. And I spent this amount of time typing up this for this group of women that are working with me in the group coaching program. And I got on a call with a woman who was really struggling because you know, her kid was uh, having trouble, whatever, whatever. And I spent time helping her walk through that and talk through that and create through that. When I sit down and I look at the things that I've accomplished in a day, a week, a month, a quarter, a year... Success, success for me looks like I have changed people's lives. I've helped people transform their lives themselves. I've helped people feel more empowered. I have helped whole families feel more joy and success, right? In whatever way that looks like. I have helped a woman feel more independent because now she can take what she's able to do in the world, her gift, her talent, her passion, and earn an income for her family. When I sit down and look at that, that to me is success. It's it's not necessarily how much money I have in my bank account. It is what have I done to help other people live a life that I think is also uh, full of joy and love. Because I think that those things are, are really truly what, if I'm being really honest, I know we have to pay bills. Don't get me wrong. I cannot go into... AT&T or the electric company and say, hey, can I pay my bill with joy today? (laughs) I get that. I am very aware of that. Uh, But I do think that, you know, what we put out in the world, we get back tenfold. And so to me, success looks like being able to just put more love and joy into the world. And I said, I've said the words love and joy like a thousand times in this interview. (laughs) And so people are probably going to walk away going, okay, Kyla, we get it. Love, joy, love, joy, love, joy. Honestly, that is, that is really truly for me what success looks like. And, And just being able to do the things that I want to do and and that bring me joy and allow me to uh, give back into the world in really good ways Um, and I think the last thing I'll say is being able to be present for my family Um, I don't have any birth children but I did raise my nephew uh, Trevor and my husband and I raised him so he's my you know my kid Uh, but then also just my aunties and my mother they're all getting older and my cousins and my right like just being able to be present for them, for them to know they can pick up the phone and call me and say, Kyla, do you have any suggestions for tea that I can drink? I've got a tummy ache or like the silliest and littlest of things, but me being able to literally be able to pick up the phone in the middle of the day and say, what do you need? How can I help you? How can I be here for you? Right. So those are the things that I think um, really mark success for me. And then the last one I'll add to that, Laura, is when women that I have worked with come back to me, two years, a year later, six months later, after working with me and say, Kyla, you were right. I can create a life that I love and look at what I've done. Look at this thing that I have done. That to me is a measure of success. When my gifts and my talents and my passions can be shared with other people so that they can then take their gifts, talents, and passions and share with other people. And then it becomes this ripple. We're all just rippling out to each other. That is also... measure of success for
0: me. Well Kyla I just want to say from the bottom of my heart thank you so much for this beautiful conversation. Mm -hmm. I actually have been really moved by so many things that you've said and actually brought tears to my eyes when you were talking about how how much your success is around love and just to hear that words said so many times in a conversation (laughs) And you kind of laughed and joked about it a bit there before, but I I just I think that is what is so beautiful about this conversation and I can't wait to share it with everyone. So thank you so much. Laura, thank you.
1: This has been getting your email, getting this invitation. Um, this is, I, I don't even know the words to put around it. It's just a feeling and I wish that I could describe it, but it is, I'm very grateful very, very thankful to you for spotlighting um, people who maybe don't have, like you said, the big following, um, but are doing really good work in the world. So thank you. And I also have to thank you for being one of my inspirations um, in my creative journey. Uh, So the work that you're doing, I don't know how many people write you and tell you how uh, impactful it is. But if I'm going to say it right now, for, for many, many people, I'm sure, Thank you for doing what you do in the world because it is, um, I take a class from you and literally I could listen to you talk about anything. Just your voice is very soothing and calming for me. And when I take a class from you, I'm just like, right, it can be, it, it literally doesn't have to be so scary. So thank you. Thank you for what you do in the
0: world. Thank you for that. And you just reminded me of one thing that I wanted to say as well. I could listen to you all day. (laughs) You have such a calm, beautiful spirit. I didn't want this conversation to end and I was looking at the time going, you have to wrap this up, Laura, at some point. (laughs) But I could listen to you all day. You are an incredible woman. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you. (laughs) Well that's it for this week. Such a beautiful and insightful conversation. I hope that you enjoyed it and before I sign off I wanted to say thank you everyone for tuning in to this season of interviews and thank you for your support of each and every artist that has been involved. I know that it means the world to them and to me that you go over and check out their work, comment on their social media and share Instagram stories showing your appreciation of the conversations. So for this week's episode, I'd love for you to connect with Kyla and you can find her over at her website, kylagivehand.com and her Instagram is at Kyla I'll just spell that one for you. It's K-I-A-L-A-G-I-V-E-S. And you can also follow along with my journey at laurahornart.com and over on Instagram at laurahornart. Have a wonderful week, everyone, and I hope that you'll tune in next time.